Well, please turn with me in our Bibles this morning to Mark chapter 14 and turning to verse 53. If you're using the church Bibles, you'll find this on page 851. Mark 14 at verse 53. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked uh, Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. Whenever someone makes a claim uh, about anything, uh, we automatically and instinctively start to think about that issue or that person in light of the window of how they are framing them. If they say that they are uh, the best at chess, uh, then you play them in chess, you're going to be expecting that they are the best, the number one player at chess. If they sell uh, the best product, you are going to make a judgment about them, not just about whether what they're selling is good or whether you like it, but is it the best? because that's what they claim about themselves. And this morning, as we're turning back to Mark's gospel, we are looking at a claim of Jesus. And we need to see that as we're thinking about uh, Jesus, we have to think about him in light of what he claims about himself. Our view of Jesus can't just be broadly about whether it's positive or negative, but are we taking into consideration what Jesus says about about himself? And are we judging him on that grounds? At this point, you remember that uh, Jesus uh, had been betrayed. Judas had uh, taken a company of uh, men to arrest Jesus in the darkness of the night. And Jesus didn't resist those efforts. But as a result of that arrest, uh, Jesus was brought, it says, to the high priest, uh, who at that time was a man named Caiaphas. Uh, And now he's being brought to the high priest, Uh, in order to fulfill Judas's uh, deal 
but ultimately to set in motion the, the, the working of how to put Jesus to death. But you notice that as we turn back to Mark's gospel as well, that the way that Mark is telling the, the story, he weaves back and forth between the account of what Peter is experiencing and what Jesus is experiencing. He's already mentioned, uh, really from the time that Jesus foretold what Peter would himself do in denying Jesus. Uh, We're seeing here something of the dynamics at play between these two individuals. That Peter was adamant that he would die for Jesus. Uh, But Jesus told him that it was, uh, that he himself would abandon him and would not uh, stand true to him. And you know uh, already, uh, as we looked at before, that uh, Peter ultimately does deny Jesus those three times. But back in verse uh, 54, it says that Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And Peter really, or Mark really seems to want to weave Peter back and forth into this story in order to highlight something. Because both of these men are going to testify both of these men are going to give their own, their own affirmation or they're both of them are going to give their own witness uh, before others in public. But the difference between these two men will stand out very clearly. Will, they stand really in stark contrast to one another. Because whereas Jesus will stand alone before the Jewish Sanhedrin and he will give testimony, he will bear witness faithfully about himself. Peter will fall in that same scenario where he is called to give testimony, where he is called to give witness. He will crumble under the pressure of it. And that seems to be what Mark is really highlighting as he weaves back and forth between these two accounts. But here in our verses this morning, uh, we're looking especially at Jesus's testimony, what Jesus testifies, what he bears witness to when he is brought before the Jewish Sanhedrin. And we want to see that because Jesus has testified to being the Son of God, that we have to think about Jesus on that claim. Because he testified to being the Son of God, the way that you think about Jesus must be in relation to that claim. And we want to think about these verses in three thoughts. We want to think about the accusation that is coming against Jesus. We want to think of the many accusations that are coming against Jesus. Then we want to think secondly about the affirmation of Jesus. And then finally we want to think about the answer that comes by uh, the, the Sanhedrin and by the high priest in particular. Well, first, there are the many accusations that come against Jesus. It tells us there, now the chief priests and the, uh, the, chief priests and the whole council were seeking... Uh, Uh, seeking testimony against Jesus uh, to put him to death, but they found none. All these uh, people have come together. Uh, The chief priests, the elders, and the scribes have come together in the darkness of the night, which is a reminder to us, uh, as it mentions these three groups, that this is not a mob. This is not just a group of people coming together to dominate their will. This is an official uh, body that is coming together in some capacity. They are slowly trickling together in the darkness of the night. But the scribes, the elders, the chief priests, these are the Jewish Sanhedrin, uh, a company that would compose of about 71 people. 
And as many that gathered on that night, they form an official body that makes official decisions. The Sanhedrin is the highest religious body in the land of Judea. They have sovereignty over religious matters. And so here they are coming together with that purpose to make a decision about Jesus. And their decision has already been concluded. Uh, They already have the predetermined uh, uh, evaluation that Jesus is to be put to death. And you remember that that's been something they have decided upon uh, much earlier. But it's really a matter of how do we get from point A to point B. Uh, They already know that they want to put Jesus to death. It's just a matter of what is the, the best course of making that case. How do we justify that this man is worthy of death. And so they're looking for charges to bring against him uh, where they can succeed in justifying uh, that decision. But it tells us that the charges that they were making uh, weren't sticking to Jesus. Uh, they, they weren't uh, coming together as they had hoped. Uh, they were wicked, uh, it says there in verse 56, they were seeking testimony against Jesus, but they found none. Uh, like having a sticky note uh, that, no, that doesn't have any stickiness to it. You're trying to pin it to something, pin it to a book or pin it to the wall, but it doesn't have the stickiness to stay on. Many people were making charges against Jesus, but they weren't sticking. Uh, and they needed them to stick if they were going to be able to proceed. Uh, because as much as uh, they are filled with hatred against Jesus, they are still trying to see the law observed. And the law of God commanded that one could not be put to death on the uh, evidence of one witness. It was on the account of two witnesses or of three witnesses, a plurality of witnesses, that only on those grounds could one be condemned to death. And so while people might make accusations, they needed to have collaboration. They needed to be agreed in their testimony. And that wasn't happening. And so the charges aren't sticking to Jesus that they're hoping to bring against him. And so they they begin to uh, press further and further about uh, how to get Jesus uh, to be put to death. Uh, They conflicted with each other. But it says in verse 57 uh, that uh, uh, some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We have heard him say, I will destroy this temple uh, that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Uh, But you know that Jesus actually never said that. The closest thing that Jesus ever said to something like that is actually found in John chapter 2. And if you look in John chapter 2, you'll notice that Jesus says, you destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Jesus didn't say that he would destroy the temple. He said the temple would be destroyed and that he would raise it up. But you may remember as we've been going through Mark's gospel that there was a time when they left the temple. You remember the disciples when they left, they were looking at the grandeur of the temple and they said to Jesus, look at the marvelous stones. And you remember how Jesus uh, shocked them by saying that not one stone will be left upon another. That Jesus did say in Mark uh, 13, there will be not left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. You see, Jesus did say that the temple would be destroyed. He did prophesy that. But he never said that he would destroy the temple. 
But that's what the accusation is really trying to do here. The accusation that comes against Jesus is inferring that Jesus was threatening himself to destroy the temple. That Jesus himself said that I will destroy the temple, but Jesus never said that. In Mark 13, he said the temple will be destroyed. And in John 2, he said you will destroy the temple, speaking about his own body, but that he would raise himself up. And so their accusations here are uh, without grounds, and yet they are proceeding uh, nevertheless. And so their testimonies, even on this grounds, uh, did not agree. And so eventually the high priest is becoming frustrated and he wants to move things forward. And in verse 60, the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus directly, uh, looking for something direct now. If Jesus will say something, then we can have accusation to, to proceed. And he asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? And Jesus remained silent. All of these accusations circling around him. And Jesus remains silent. Have you ever been misrepresented? You young people, if you have ever had a fight with your sibling and your mom hears about this verbal contention that's growing in the household and she calls you to an account and she says, what was going on? What was happening? And one of your siblings starts talking and they start explaining what happened. But as they're telling the story, the way that they tell the story, they, they omit something about what you said or what you did. Or they say something about what you did that casts your actions in a dark light. And you start to hear as the story is being told that it's going to make you look bad. Do you sit there and be indifferent? Or do you suddenly boil up and say, that's not what happened. That's not how it was. I didn't mean it that way. No, there was a reason why I didn't do that for them. And you want to defend yourself. Why? Because when someone attacks you, when someone attacks your character, they're attacking you at the core of who you are. You don't just let that slide. Because when someone is slandering you, when someone is misrepresenting you, it's who you are that is under attack. We aren't, we aren't indifferent when someone misrepresents us, when someone insults us, when someone accuses us of doing something, when someone misreads our motives. It hurts because it's right down to the depth of who we are. But here is Jesus being misrepresented again and again and again. He's being charged with doing things that are sinful. And Jesus, when even he's questioned by the high priest, is silent. It's striking because it's so not what we would expect. If you were being accused of something, if you were being misrepresented, you would instinctively and immediately go to on the defensive. Not true. That's not right. Jesus here doesn't do that. And at the very least, you have to come away saying, Jesus seems to be at peace with what is happening. That he is submitting that this is something that is according to the Father's will. That he's not fighting against it. He's allowing things to proceed, even though it's proceeding on false grounds. But it's not only doing that, it's doing more. Because it's, it's 
harmonizing with what, what Isaiah and the Old Testament said would happen. That like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, so he opened not his mouth. That the Messiah would be marked by a, a quiet submission. When you would expect there to be some kind of resistance, he's rather quiet. And here is Jesus not responding even when he is being accused by his enemies. So uh, Jesus here uh, shows that he is submitting uh, and fulfilling uh, even the prophecies of Scripture. There were many accusations that come against Jesus, but they don't agree with one another. And even the accusation that they bring that he would destroy the temple, uh, even that one they can't agree. Uh, But it doesn't, again, hold any weight to it. But there is not just the accusations in this encounter. There's also an affirmation that comes as well. When the high priest asks, uh, intervenes uh, again, the high priest gets right to the matter. He says to Jesus, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? That's a very insightful question. Because again, what it's teaching us is, is that the high priest and the Sanhedrin understood what Jesus was doing. They understood what Jesus was teaching about himself. The high priest is able to summarize Jesus' ministry, and he's able to directly ask Jesus to make plain what has been shown and demonstrated and inferred and highlighted throughout his ministry. Are you the Christ? Do you believe you're the promised king? Are you the son of the blessed? Are you the son of God? He's summarizing his understanding of Jesus as Jesus would present himself. And now he's asking Jesus to just say it plainly so that they can move on that grounds. When he asks them this, again, he's, he's doing so in response to how Jesus himself revealed himself. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey's colt, He was fulfilling what was prophesied in Zechariah 9. That in Zechariah 9, it spoke about a king. The promised king will come to you mounted uh, on a donkey's colt. He'll be marked by humility. So when Jesus did that, it was a clear intentional gesture to say that I am that king. I am that Christ. I'm that promised one that the scriptures speak about. But more than that, Jesus was more than just saying he's the king. He presented himself as the son of God. You'll notice there that the question by the high priest says, are you the son of the blessed? He doesn't say, are you the son of God? But that's because of the Jewish reverence for the name of God. The Jews were very concerned about protecting God's name and of not violating the third commandment of taking the Lord's name in vain. And so they wouldn't use the name of God. Instead, they would exchange it with another name. They would speak about heaven. They would speak about power. They would speak about blessed. They would say the name, but they wouldn't use the name. And so here is the chief priest essentially saying the same thing as, are you making yourself out to be the son of God? Again, you read back. That's exactly what Jesus was doing. When Jesus gave the parable of the tenants in the vineyard, he spoke about how the master of the vineyard lent out his vineyard to servants 
and then uh, to tenants, and then he sent his servants, and the tenants killed and abused those servants. And then finally, the master of the vineyard said, I will send to them my beloved son, the son of the beloved. The beloved son comes, and Jesus was there teaching about himself. Or again, as we were saying, when Jesus was being interrogated with questions, Jesus' question and response was, Psalm 110. How is it that David could say, my Lord? The Lord said to him, my Lord. And so Jesus was saying not only that he was the son of David, not only was he the promised king, but he was making him out to be David's Lord, who is seated at the right hand of the father until he makes all his enemies sit under his foot. And so that's what the, the priest's question is. He's, he's really saying, we understand what you have been teaching. Say it plainly. And here, here is where we come to the climax of Mark's gospel. Mark's gospel climaxes really in this courtroom case. Because here is Jesus making his confession openly. Here is Jesus making his confession about who he is before a judicial body. Here is Jesus saying who he is, knowing that it will cost him his life. Here is Jesus saying how we are to think about him. And Jesus says in response to the high priest, I am. But more than that, he goes on and he says in verse 62, You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, and coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus is really taking two passages in the Old Testament and he's bringing them together to see them together as a united message. The two passages are Psalm 110 and Daniel chapter 7, which we read. And Jesus is saying, this is how you are to think of me, not just as a promised king, not just as son of God, but what those terms mean in reality, what they fully bring to the surface. He says that you will see me coming on the clouds. God in scripture is described as the one who rides on the clouds. He's the one who makes himself known uh, from the clouds. He's the one uh, who shows his glory in the clouds. And Jesus says, you will see me uh, 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 coming on the clouds. But more than that, he says that he is uh, seated at the right hand of power. He's seated at the right hand of God. And he says that he is given a kingdom. Uh, that is what Daniel chapter 7 was teaching. That uh, his rule and his power are eternal. It covers all peoples, nations, and languages. In other words, he is saying that he has the very power of God himself. That he comes before the ancient of days to receive an eternal kingdom. A kingdom that has universal reign. A kingdom that will forever be uh, revealed. That will never pass away. Jesus says, I am the promised king. But I am the king who rules for eternity. I am the son of God. Because I am equal in glory with the ancient of days. That's Jesus' confession. That's how Jesus wants to be understood. 
that here in the, the hardest point where he's being pressed about his testimony, Jesus gives it. And so Mark's gospel, which begins with the beginning of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, now we understand what that opening meant. That Jesus makes, him, makes himself revealed as the promised Savior, who is equal in power and glory with God the Father. He is then describing himself as the ruler of God's kingdom. He is the one through whom justice and righteousness will be established, as Jeremiah said. He is the one who will build God's house in fulfillment of God's promise to David that one of his sons would build a house for God's name. But he is also the appointed judge, the judge of all humanity. And this is what Jesus claims for himself. And so Jesus says they will see his God-given authority. It will be confirmed when he is raised from the dead, when he ascends into heaven, and when he ultimately returns on the clouds to judge the heavens and the earth. Here is Jesus' confession. Here is Jesus affirming that he is the Christ and the Son of God. But then thirdly, there is the answer uh, to that uh, testimony of Jesus. It tells us in verse 63 that the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? The tearing of his robes uh, was obviously meant to express his inner grief in an outward way. Uh, He was distressed about what Jesus had just uttered. And he declares it to be blasphemy. Uh, Blasphemy uh, is a word that can be thrown around, but what does it actually mean? Blasphemy is uh, to uh, denigrate the glory of God. Uh, It is to rob God of the glory that is due to him. uh, Or it is to give the glory that is due to God to another. Uh, to, to, To fail to see the distinction between the creator and the creature attributing to the creatures the qualities that are only reserved for God. So when someone worships a creature, it's blasphemy, because only God is to be worshipped. When someone attributes uh, the qualities that only belong to God to a creature, it would be treated as blasphemy, because we're confusing creator, creator and creature. And that's why the high priest is so upset here. He sees that Jesus has taken something that belongs to God, the ruler of the uh, earth, the judge of all of humanity, the one who establishes God's glory amongst humanity. And he's applied that to himself. And so the high priest uh, is convinced that here, finally, is an accusation they can move on. Jesus has said something that is blasphemous in his sight. But all of that calls into question. Do we think about Jesus according to the way that Jesus describes himself. Jesus didn't simply speak about himself as being a good teacher. We can't interact with Jesus just on the level of morality and say that Jesus had lots of virtues that he exemplified. Jesus taught us many good things that we should do. We should love our neighbor. Jesus highlighted uh, many things like mercy and patience. Uh, These are good virtues that we should emulate ourselves. That's not how Jesus testifies about himself. His claim is the ground upon which we must evaluate Jesus. And Jesus' claim 
is to carry the glory of God himself, to be the king who has all rule and authority over heaven and of earth. Does it offend you as you think about what Jesus has claimed uh, to think that you need a king to save you? That the only way of being approved in God's sight is by trusting in him. Jesus came to bring uh, deliverance from captivity to sin and to open up a way of access into God's fellowship. That's going to have a reaction if we take his claim seriously. Either it offends you to think that that I need someone to do that on my behalf. Or it's going to exhilarate you to think that the one who rules all things was willing to do that for me. But it will bring a reaction. If we don't understand why the high priest ripped his robes, we're not dealing with the claims of Jesus. If we're really wrestling with who Jesus is, it should bring forth a big reaction because Jesus is claiming big things about himself here. We are told that after the high priest said all these things, he asked what their decision was as a Sanhedrin and they all condemned him as deserving of death. Some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him and saying to him, prophesy. Matthew's gospel explains that what they were doing is as they were covering his face and then saying, who is it that struck you as they continued to spit at him? They were obviously denigrating uh, and rejecting the claims of Jesus, but they were reacting. They gave their answer to what he had claimed. They despised it. And their reaction was, uh, was clear. But while they made that claim, it's ironic that in rejecting and despising the claim of Jesus to being the Messiah, their actions were actually confirming it. Because you go back to Isaiah, you go back to the passages that speak about the servant of the Lord, you go back to the passages that speak about the Messiah to come, and in Isaiah 50 it says that they spit on me. That the ones who were pulling at his beard, the ones who were mocking at him, also even down to the detail, Isaiah says, were marked by spitting at the servant of the Lord. And so here they are despising this man's claims, even while they are fulfilling what the claims pointed to. That he is the promised king. Jesus' claims to be the Messiah and the son of the blessed would be further confirmed when God raised him from the dead, when he ascended into heaven. His claim to being the Messiah and the son of blessed uh, would be finally confirmed uh, when he returns to judge all the earth. In other words, there's just a growing confirmation that happens. But the claims of Jesus bring about a polarizing reaction. One person, her name is Carolyn Weber, uh, wrote a book uh, called Surprised by Oxford. It's a book about her own conversion uh, to Christianity while she was at Oxford. But in that book, uh, she shares a section, uh, a conversation that she had with some of her friends. And one of them says, if you want to tick people off, just bring up the word Jesus. Say Jesus and people either get happy or they get mad. They either smile or a cloud comes over their faces. 
They are either elated or irritated. Embarrassed, they try to change the subject or walk away. No other name has such potency. Just the name of Jesus brings a reaction. Either it brings joy or it brings irritation. Why? Because of the claims. Because Jesus is claiming to be a king that rescues us from our sin. Either we are going to acknowledge that we have a problem, that we have guilt and we need God's help. We need a king to deliver us. Or we're going to be hardened by that notion and want to live in defiance of any help. Jesus claims to be the son of God who has all glory and power and yet he draws near to us. That'll either harden us or it'll bring joy to us to know that the God of heaven and earth cares and draws near. Do we want to be alone or do we want to know God as he is? What is your reaction to Jesus? He claims to be the judge of the universe, and yet he was willing to be judged and condemned in order to make many righteous. That will either offend you because you don't see a need of a savior, or it will humble you to know that there is one. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray as we think over uh, the uh, trial of Jesus, as we think about the testimony of Jesus, We pray, Lord, that we would see the greatness of his claims, but to also see that his claims uh, are confirmed through the resurrection. They're confirmed through his ascension. They're confirmed through the teaching of scripture. They're confirmed through the work of the spirit in individuals' lives. And so we ask that by your spirit, we would not only uh, understand the events that took place, But we pray that we would be people who respond with uh, joy and thanksgiving. So go before us, we pray in Jesus' name.